Welcome to the Five Acres Podcast, the first in-house agency-produced program designed to provide inspiration, motivation, and concrete action steps for families struggling with issues related to adoption, residential care, and mental health. I'm Adam Haynes, trainer of evidence-based practices here at Five Acres, joined by Brandon Ito, the Associate Director of Development, and Jake Cashill, Director of Facilities. We're the team who are going to introduce you to the wonderful and talented clinicians, residential treatment counselors, therapeutic behavioral specialists, case managers, adoption service specialists, and the many other staff members who work tirelessly to help our clients resolve issues involving mental health, foster care, adoption, and sometimes all three at the same time here at Five Acres. So one of the reasons I thought it'd be really important to have you on is that you are a strong advocate for foster care. So technically speaking, you are no longer a foster parent. And I miss it. You miss it. <laughs> You're with a full house and you still miss it. That's yeah. funny. Um, and in midst of it, even though you are no longer an active foster parent, you still are an active advocate. So you participate in support groups to help the families kind of navigate their situations. I've heard from many parents that you are their kind of cornerstone throughout this process, mm -hmm. just kind of their rock to help um, guide them when they need support. Um, yeah, you are just at the panels when we need you to participate <laughs> for the panels. Like you volunteer for all of these things. It's not paid by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> you just want to participate. Why is that? Why is it that you still want to be active in these ways? I've been out of it since well, a few years now. And I, I love that that's how I got to build my family. I love that the process was so unique. Not only the process itself, but each child is unique. I enjoy that. I love that other parents or other families get to build their families the same way. Um, and even if I, even if my journey's on hold, uh, maybe there's more kids in my future, but even if, even if my journey's on hold for a little bit, I'm happy to help other families do this as well. So what you just said on tape is that your journey is potentially. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> it's on the record. Yeah. You just, you might as well have just written it and shown now. That's funny. Um, so I do want to kind of, you have had at this point. You got approved somewhere around 2015, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we just interviewed Dana and Gina um, mm -hmm. last week. And um, the, we were talking about where we met them at the 2014 Raise a Child event in yeah. Claremont, Super yeah. Raise Night. You were at that same event. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, considering now at this point, you guys have gone through the same cohort of classes same journey in terms yeah. of adoptions, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. And we, you guys remain good friends at this point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And one of the things we actually talked about was that they had a WTF um, text group that kind of goes around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say, did you start it or did Gina start it? Who was the one that started um, It's Gina, myself, and another Five Acres um, foster um, parent. And it's, it's really much needed venting. 
everything from my social worker did this and or I need help with this or my kid did this and you know we're crying on the bathroom floor somewhere so it's everything from cheering each other on to venting and it's been so helpful because when you talk to other foster parents they know like the court system and the kids and Mm. maybe like some some trauma-based behaviors and it's just way different and more beneficial to vent to another foster adoptive parent than maybe somebody who hasn't gone through the process. Right, because they don't understand it as well. Mm. So one of the yeah. things that I talk about during uh, training is I welcome people to just bring if they have a sister who's going to support them or mm-hmm. who's going to be supported, like bring them to training too because getting people to understand really what it is yes. to be like when the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm glad you have that community yeah. and that, you know, that we get to watch it. Yeah. Um, so at this point I pulled your report today mm-hmm. and it looks like you have had 11 kids in total placement in your homes. Yeah. That's, that's wow. quite a bit. <laughs> uh, you've provided respite for two additional kids so you're supporting yeah. other parents doing respite mm-hmm. and you have adopted four of your own obviously yes my goodness <laughs> that sounds like a lot when you say it <laughs> when sounds you like listen, a lot to it me. sounds like a lot <laughs> newsflash recounts a lot <laughs> and the thing is that i can't ever really recall a time when you had less than three kids in your home so yeah, you we constantly had... had multiple children in your home yeah, we had one and then it was like two months later, the second, and then like two months later, a third. And it varied from like three to five at multiple times. There was five kids. So it just varied. One of the things I remember is a, a photo of you at Costco with like, <laughs> oh, I don't even know. I didn't even know that Costco had that type of seating. Where yeah. it, was like, it was like roller coaster seating. Yeah. Parts, like my goodness. Yeah. Um, and how you manage it all. So one of the things we want to talk about is, yeah, what is it like kind of managing that experience? What lessons have you learned? What journeys have you gone through? What are some of the challenges, et cetera? Um, really just to help educate people who want to learn more about this process, mm-hmm. who are curious or maybe on the fence about it. I know that oftentimes um, people want to step into this process, but there's this mm-hmm. fear that, even if they make the phone call, that that means commitment. Mm. It doesn't. Like generally, it really means um, that it's kind of just a step-by-step, gradual process of readiness. Hmm. Um, what yeah. made you feel ready? 2014, when you attended that orientation, were you ready then, or did it come <laughs> throughout? Tell me about that. Um, I just know that that's how adoption was how I wanted to build my family. And so much, especially on my mom's side of the family, there's my grandparents, they have more adopted grandchildren than they do biological grandchildren. So that was always just on my mind. That's how it's going to be. I have a family, um, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins who are ready to accept any child that comes into our family in any form. So that was just always how it was going to be. It was adopt and after investigating different ways of adopting I just thought foster care was like on my heart and the way to go when you adopted Andrew who was your first Mm -hmm. son Mm -hmm. um, you didn't stop there one of the things that I know about you is that it's not it you want to adopt obviously you want to grow your family seems very natural because this is kind of the culture of your family but fostering is is as important to you 
mm-hmm. um, and you want to honor that process. I know that about you to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Andrew, mm-hmm. first time you're going to have a child in your home, it's yeah. got to be nerve wracking. It's got to be. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Tell me about that process of what it was like to, um, you know, get Andrew into your home. How did that happen? I know it was different than what a lot of people experience. Um. I know, I know some people come in like, oh, I want a baby. And, you know, I don't know, like maybe the bonding or for whatever reasons. And um, that was kind of in the back of my head. But Andrew was presented a three and a half year old Hispanic uh, boy. And, um, and the social worker presented that case specifically to us for um, because we have nephews his age. So we thought about it. And, um, said yes and I remember meeting him for the first time just uh, he was at a biological re- relative's house who unfortunately they um, were under circumstances to keep him so we went over there met him for the first time and um, took him out to eat to the park shopping just to get to know him and um, it was definitely different taking in a three and a half year old than a baby but like the bond and the love was there from the beginning so you didn't take them home that first day. There was multiple no. meetings before the day yeah. when, when you got mm-hmm. to transition him. Tell yeah. me about that transition process and what that was like. Um, so the, so in just like getting to know him, um, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't told him yet that like why we were getting to know him and, you know, that was a delicate process. So we definitely were building the bond in the background um, in that two weeks before he moved in. So the, so the actual day came to moving him in and his stuff, I guess somewhere along the lines, it was lost in communication of him not being told exactly what was happening that day. So um, the social worker brought him and the last of his stuff and he, and then she left. So nobody told him like detail by detail that like we were his new home, we were his new family. So as soon as a social worker left, he ran under the kitchen table and even though he'd been there before it was like of course who wouldn't be absolutely terrified of just being dropped off somewhere and not being told why the door's shutting so he ran under the kitchen table and he was screaming and I just want to go home I just want to go home and if I, I can interject under- there a little bit yeah. uh, Raquel because I, I've heard you tell this story at, at during the panels before mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that you've mentioned in the past is that, you know, of course, um, the initial idea is, you know, somebody was going to tell him on this end and then somebody was going to tell him on this end. Meanwhile, how many times had he transitioned or spent, um, time in different, you know, foster homes, even though it may have, some of those may have been biological families. How many, how many homes? Yeah. So we, we were his 10th move. And the majority of those moves were with biological family. So, yeah, he. One of the things that you mentioned is that when he, uh, when the social worker left your home, she left Mm -hmm. behind this blue folder. And so this blue folder for him was representative of the fact that this is a new home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, every time a kid moves, um, it's the paperwork from the county. And it's like, you know, here's his medical forms. Here's maybe medical history. Here's like, you know, paperwork, you know, contract that you're taking over his care. So it's the magical blue folder that, you know, every new foster parent gets when, um, you know, kid comes from the county. So 
being that we were his 10th move, he's seen that folder 10 plus times. So it wasn't just that the social worker left, is that she left mm. and the blue folder was left as yeah. well. Yeah, he watched very cautiously as I was signing all the paperwork in the blue folder. Like he was very aware of like, that's a new toy, but I know what that blue folder is. So that's, oh, wow. that's kind of, you know, of course he knows what that blue folder means. No wonder he was nervous. So the door closes, he starts mm-hmm. to cry. What happens next? He ran under the kitchen table and I want to go home. I want to go home. And he's crying. And I got under the table with him and tried to hug him, but he didn't want to. And so I just sat with him and just, I know. And so I gave him the space that he wanted, but I was also there with him underneath that table. He was under there for a while and, you know, eventually got him out with popcorn and strawberry milk and some cartoons. Oh, I love strawberry milk. Yeah. <laughs> it took a good half hour, right, to, to coax him yeah. out. What were you going through? Like you foster parent, the door just closes. Mm. Uh, I'm sure the pressure to kind of perform in this magical superhero way yeah. is kind of, you know, nagging at you. But what, what really happens for you in that moment? What do you recommend that other people kind of lean wow. Um Each as I learned later down the line, taking each kid as its own experience. Some are happy to be there. Some are a baby. So they just want a bottle. Some are scared. So it's just being patient with each kid because just being taken away from their parents is trauma just right there. Even if it was at birth, that's so much trauma right there. So, you know, anytime they're taken away from mom and dad, and if they're moved multiple times, like that's so much trauma that some of us may not even be familiar with. So just being, just being patient, especially that first day. Sounds like patience and presence. Yes. What you utilized. Yeah. Um, And I I would like just to piggyback on that and just say like, and lower the expectations of being perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the, the expectation that as a foster parent that you have to be perfect in some way can put way mm-hmm. too much pressure. Yeah, and so yeah. just being there is enough. It's yeah. Enough. And you do that well. Yeah. So thank you. I think any parent is like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it this way. And oh, gosh. Right. <laughs> when the time comes, it's totally different, right? Yeah. It, it's way different. <laughs> so letting some of that go. So what are some of those lessons and what are some of the lessons that you have gathered over 11 placements? And just to make it clear, just so that like Adam, just so that you know, mm-hmm. some of those placements were years and some of those were two hours. So they range yeah. really from two mm-hmm. hours to, you know, adoption. So they were all over the place. What yeah. I was getting that impression, right? And that's yeah. probably, that makes sense to me then the, why when you would see that, that blue folder, it's mm-hmm. just sort of like, right? It's just things can get so inconsistent and it brings up all those Mm -hmm. feelings. It's very intense sounding. So tell me what you've learned throughout those 11. Um, Yeah, I think any biological or not parent might be like, you know, I'm going to be in charge and they're not going to tell me what to do. And like, they're not going to have tantrums in the store. And so I think that was something to really look back and like, what's behind the tantrum in the store? Like if they're throwing throwing stuff off the shelf or throwing a tantrum, is it because it's something their biological parents or relatives did that's like triggering them? Is the store triggering them? If they don't want to eat something, like what is what is like looking behind it? Like what's triggering that? Um, 
had to give up on, you know, my kid's always going to be clean and daily baths. And <laughs> sometimes at the end of the night, me or the kids just don't have energy to do the bath. So there's a lot of things going into it that like, you know, I'm going to be the perfect parent. <laughs> so. It happen that way. <laughs> so it looks like, you know, finding out the needs behind the behaviors really mm-hmm. has helped you. Um, it's not only just for kind of managing or mitigating behaviors themselves, but the empathy piece, remembering there's trauma behind everything that they're displaying. There's trauma behind it. How do we address that first? How do we see the trauma behind it? Well, it sounds like that's what you're, that's what you're Mm -hmm. doing and that's what your focus is. Yeah. Just like maybe just assuming that there is always trauma behind it. And it's some, oh my gosh, I'm such a believer and such a pusher on naps. Like that naps are so important. So you try to, and that's trying to figure out the kids. Is it like, okay, it's getting to nap time. So let's take a nap or random things. Maybe it is trauma-based. So just not just looking at bad or negative or sad behavior as just acting out like what's behind it and then every kid's different on how they wanted to be comforted if they don't want to be comforted if they did how they want to be comforted what they what they want to be told it's all different so that brings me to another thing so I know one of the things you, you and I have talked about in the past is just a simple tool that you use that I've seen you um, utilize and something that people may not really think about and it's so simple so what I know to be true about children that have experienced trauma is that they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, like what mm-hmm. is going to happen next, right? So it's this worry about the need to survive that's kind of there. Um, and one thing that, you know, that we, I'm sure as a foster parent, you hear often is that there should be routine and consistency mm-hmm. and all these things. The degree that you have managed routine and consistency <laughs> is beyond what I've seen before. Um so tell me about the plates. Tell me about the way the kids get into the car. Tell me about that. Cause I think yeah. that's unique. Um, so since Andrew was our first placement and he um, had therapies and he had preschool and naps were so important for him in the beginning, just every kid after that, we just put on, on Andrew's schedule. Um, and that we just built consistency and Andrew liked you know, he looked forward to the consistency, of course, because he had moved so much and nothing was consistent more than a few weeks to a few months. And then, so just every kid after that was always younger. So they just always went on his schedule. And then now that it's just years later, that was 2015 years later, the consistency is still so important. Um, Everything from where every kid that comes into the house and everybody now here has a place at the table. It's your, your same seat. That is your seat. The way we get into the car, there's an order of getting into the car. So it's not like, I get in first, you got in last. The uh, shower order is oldest to youngest. It's just, I try to do everything in the order um, in some kind of sequence. So it's always predictable for the kids, even to the point where they're like, I know, I know I'm second. (laughs) (laughs) But it's something that they know. It's not a surprise. And um, they just, they know their daily routine. They know if I say time for bed then, or get ready for bed, they know that includes cleaning up the toys and then the toothbrush. So like, they know what that means. And, um, even when they say, I know, I know, but like, <laughs> that makes me happy. And I think them too, that there's some consistency, but I try to have consistency throughout the day, throughout everything. And 
what I've learned is to, as, as tired as I may be, sometimes as frustrated, as frustrated as I may be, if I give in even once, even once I'd say, okay, this time you don't have to, then that bites me down the line later. Mm. So keeping up with that consistency is important for our family to function and for them. Where did you learn that? Is that something that you were raised with, or is that just a piece of advice that you took to heart? Where do you learn that? I don't even know if it was something I was necessarily raised with. It, it all started with Andrew's naps, like him, him needing the nap. So it was like the next kid that comes, like that's their nap time too. So it all started with the first kid. And then we found his schedule and being that the kids were younger, it was just easy to put him to his schedule. So it was just, how can we handle multiple kids? And so that everything's the same and organized. So nice. It sounds like mm -hmm. this works. So yeah. <laughs> I'm honoring, I'm going to honor that. I'm going to recognize yeah. that. Now I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to keep going with that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the, well, the reason I asked that was that some people think that they have to, um, like there has to be an innate quality in them that says like, you're going to be wonderful as a foster parent because you have this innate quality. Yeah. But a lot of it comes through just learning, right? It's just yeah. like trial and error, what works and yeah. what works in my house, you know, because yeah. it might not be what works in your house, may not work mm -hmm. in my house. So, yeah. So that's... And and depending on like the behavior with trauma, like we had to be flexible too. So as, as much as like Andrew and me and the kids try, you know, it like it works for us here in the house now, but if there's a case, a tantrum, you know, a cold, if there's a circumstance where that needs to be thrown off to take care of a need, then so be it, then that's fine. But just on a general day, you know, everybody's alive and healthy, then that's the standard of our routine. But there are circumstances in some households where that might not work. And if that works for them, that they don't have a routine, then, then so be it. But I love a routine. <laughs> yeah, it's worked. And you can see yeah. by the smiles that they like it too. <laughs> Is having glasses in your home a requirement? I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Everyone says, I can't believe all of them do. And like, I mean, I don't tell people this. I said, I know, but in my head, I'm like, how did I adopt four kids and they all need glasses? <laughs> well, tell me about, tell me about the next three. The, so okay. after Andrew. So um, Andrew came in October of that year. And then in December, Sophia came, she came at three and a half months old. And um, her mom, they told us from the beginning, they didn't know if it would be an adoption case, like Andrew's most likely would. And um, her mom was really motivated to get her back. So it was kind of 50-50% 50-50 chance of she'd be staying there. Um, you know, we built a good relationship with mom. And even though mom was young, she was maybe like 19, 20. Like she really worked hard and really fought for her daughter, did all her visits, did all her phone calls and really worked hard to get her daughter back. And, and we're so proud of her because she grew up in foster care herself. And for her to like, just have that self-determination to fight for her daughter was, was really special to see. And she was with us for almost a year. So obviously there was a lot of bonding and seeing her through a lot of firsts first solids, first rolling over. So as blessed as our family was to see all those first, it was absolutely heartbreaking to say that goodbye after having her with us for a year as like gut-wrenching that was. It was nice for her mom who worked so hard to get her back. And we still keep in contact with them to this day. 
While we're focusing on our permanency program in this episode, Five Acres is also here to provide assistance for those seeking help for mental health issues such as depression, hopelessness, anxiety, or behavior problems. Reach out to our Hope Line by calling or texting 1-800-696-6793 or sending us an email at hope at fiveacres.org. And while our Hope Line isn't a 24-7 crisis line, Five Acres staff will reply within one business day to all texts, calls, or email. Five Acres also assists with basic needs, resources, assessing abuse, and reporting it, and starting the process for additional Five Acres services. And again, that's 1-800-696-6793, or sending us an email at hope at fiveacres.org. And if you would like to support not only our permanency program, but any of our programs and services here at Five Acres, please click the donation button in the show notes or visit our website at fiveacres.org. That's one of the things I, I did want to talk to you about in a bit is your relationship with biological family and how mm-hmm. you have helped bridge kids and prepare mm-hmm. biological families to get some of their kids back in some yeah. places. And I know Sophia, um, as you brought her up, so she was your second placement. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, she reunified just as you mentioned, and she was in some ways kind of the most heartbreaking because of the time mm-hmm. that she spent in your home. Yeah. And yeah, it was really the first child that you had to say goodbye to. Yeah, it was our, our very first goodbye. So it was, it was as you teach us in training, when saying goodbye can potentially feel like a death in the family. And that literally what it was. I remember the night before just packing her toys, her bottles, her belongings in the extra diaper boxes. And just I was sobbing, packing up those little clothes and her little toys. And it was horrible that night before then you can't sleep that night because you're gonna say goodbye and just that whole morning waiting for the social worker to come and then still I remember still holding her as a social worker is walking box after box after box to her car and then that final handing her over is just you know even the social worker was crying because we had all just built a bond with her but it was and then just sobbing on the couch after with Andrew was was horrible and again that's the number one fear that people have come yeah. in is that they're going to have to say goodbye mm-hmm. um, what makes you do it again after having to say goodbye what makes you say yes again knowing <laughs> it may turn out that way the first part that was always a thing is I always wanted to foster on top of adopting I knew that even after adopting my process and my heart wasn't done um, and I no matter if they were there for two hours, which is our shortest, they're almost a year like Sophia, that we gave them the most loving possible home that we could. And for that moment, they were safe no matter where they went after. But we know during that time that they were in in my home that they were safe. And in providing safety in that goodbye, part of what your thought process was is like, or your debating was, should Andrew be there? Should Andrew be mm-hmm. at school during that goodbye. Yeah. Like, what do we do with that goodbye process? Yeah. Knowing that it was a sensitive thing for him, mm-hmm. having witnessed it himself, you know, multiple times. So tell me what it resulted in. What made you have Andrew there with you during that process? Um, we were in um, a support group and we were talking to the support group and kind of said like, she's leaving soon and don't know what to do. You know, we're thinking about Andrew not being there because of how much it's going to hurt him. And 
Andrew to this day still adores Sophia. It's so cute. <laughs> um, and they said, no, he has to be there. If you get to say goodbye, he gets to say goodbye. So yeah, he, we kept him home from school that day and he got to, he got to say goodbye too. I think that was that was an important kind of lesson of like you're not the only one that has to go through the morning yeah. and the grieving. The kids have to experience it too, and there yeah. has to come to some fruition, right? So mm-hmm. process has to be experienced in order to really grieve it well. So next came it was a destiny that came next. Yeah, destiny. She came. Well, let's see. I think Andrew's October. Sophia was December. Destiny, I think, was maybe like March or April. So yeah. what did they tell you when you said yes to Destiny? Well, what did they tell you when they called you? Um, so with Destiny was kind of weird because we always said that we're going to, our family's going to take kids just, um, you know, we, we kind of had a list like this, this age group and just, we kind of just like had what our requirements were to be able to call us. And one of them was um, no kind of physical or mental disabilities Uh, We just felt like we weren't equipped as a family to handle that. So we, but we just get this call for, I think she was 11 months at the time, little girl, and she's possibly autistic. So if you take her in, you would have to take her to her therapies, to testing and all that stuff. And it was just like instantly a gut feeling of yes. When before it would have been like, why are you even calling us for that? So it was just this gut feeling of yes, like she needs to come to our home. So we picked her up, I think it was that day, that same day, maybe the next day we picked her up and she came and she's just small and skinny and still like a little sparkle in her eye, but um, she just flourished over the next few weeks. I think she just needed like proper nutrition and hugs and loves and she is just by far like the spunkiest, most silly laugh, like lovable energetic little girl ever and she just it turns out she you know her features weren't autistic features it was just needing a good home well that's one of the things that they told you was that she may have down syndrome yeah Mm -hmm. Um, and it turns out that none of that was no no No, she's just she was ball she's had like the most infectious laugh like it was this like little squeal it was so cute (laughs) You even light up when you talk about her. Yeah, I, we miss her so much. She's so cute. So Andrew had different experience from what yeah. you told me. <laughs> so he has, she, um, Destiny had to measure up to Sophia in some ways. And I know yeah. one of the things that you've talked about is part of your, part of what you have done well, another thing that you have done well is prep all the kids along the way about what their mm-hmm. journey might look like yeah. Um, just so that they understand. I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but when one of those things essentially is to let them know, you know, we're going to this visit because their parents are trying to get better, something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, tell me about what Andrew, what Andrew said. <laughs> uh, so we, you know, told Andrew that we're taking these kids in because their mommies and daddies are six right now. So until they're better or, you know, a relative's better then they're going to be in our home. And so does it where Sophia was like softer and more gentle. Sophia was just like a ball of energy and would crash his cars or anything that he built. And so we came back from a visit of monitoring um, a visit with destiny and her grandma and a friend. 
and like and Andrew was kind of disappointed that she came back and was like is her mommy and daddy better yet I want her to go home <laughs> <laughs> so he was he was ready for her to leave because as he so said she that, kept rings, like, yeah. that rings like full-on sibling right there That's yeah, like sibling, right? yeah. Like, they are definitely siblings at that yeah. point um so tell me a little bit more about like how how is it that the kids have that explanation of what's going to happen next? How do you ease their mind about this unknown piece of the journey? Um, I know that when you and I have spoken in the past, one of the most difficult things for you to manage is, you know, the everything that's unknown in this process. And it's essentially pretty much everything, right? Aside yeah. from what you can control. Mm -hmm. How do you manage that um, unknown for the kids? Uh, being super super honest even if the answer is I don't know just I don't know but I'll try to find out from like your social worker um being honest with you know I don't know like when am I going to get to see my mommy next you know at the visits and you know um oh it's you know it's scheduled for Tuesday at three you know because I do know it's scheduled or um you know I'm not sure let me you know call the social worker and even if they see me calling just so you know that I'm being honest with them being honest with, you know, with Andrew or if somebody who's old enough or not old enough, whatever age appropriate may be, just, I don't know the answer or you're here because your mommy and daddy are sick and, you know, I'm going to try to keep doing visits with you, with them and phone calls or whatever it may be. So just being age appropriately and honest. How do you prep them for a sibling, you know, essentially a foster sibling that is going to be reunifying? Uh, just being as soon as we knew something like looks like mom if you know on adult end if we're be taking a mom's cleaning up she's doing what she's doing or dad's doing what they're doing it looks like reunification is maybe like two months out then being honest with Andrew because he was always the oldest that we ever had you know mom and dad are getting better so and so might be leaving soon so just being honest like every step along the way and you know, though they're still doing good. That still kind of looks like the plan. And that's so important, Raquel. I'm mm -hmm. so glad that you do that just to ease their mind so that they understand what is happening next. Yeah. And not like the world is kind of chaotic around that they understand um, what to anticipate and what to yeah. expect. Like you're really good mm -hmm. at that. It sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, because then you're with them, right? It's like you're collaborating yeah. with them. You're on the mm -hmm. same team. There's that support rather than just feeling like you got to manage this and you're putting them over here. And uh, that yeah. sounds really cool. Yeah, because I, I think in just saying that, Adam, it seems like a lot of parents may think they're protecting the kids by keeping yeah. them maybe at a distance. There you go. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is understandable, but it doesn't work as well, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the, the children that we've talked about is um, a little girl with the initial M. You had her for two days. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that you knew or that you were told, tell me if I'm wrong, was that um, she had a mom who was trying to get her back or something to that effect. Like, tell me how that particular placement worked out. I think it's important to kind of highlight because it is one of the cases where you literally prepped mom to get her yeah. child back tell me how, how that case went um mom had her um mom had another family member watching her daughter and some stuff happened there i'm not really sure about the details well the baby was taken from there mom goes to pick up her daughter from 
who was babysitting her and found out that her daughter was in foster care. So in meeting mom, like she's totally responsible, single mom, you know, just really doing this whole life thing on her own. And so she, she was with us and we found all that while monitoring the first visit, which was the very next day. And then in finding all that out, talking to mom, like I was so motivated to help her. Like they're going to do a home inspection. So make sure, you know, you have, you know, this locked up, you have this, you have this, you know, show documentation of like your job, like proof of job. So really walked mom through what she would have to do at court the next day to help her get her daughter back. And she just was so loving and was so scared that this had even happened to her. So I was more than happy to, to just tell her the steps that she needed. And she even called me the, that night, the night before court. And I have this and I have this, do you think this is okay? And so I was so happy to help her with what she needed to get her daughter back. Can't even imagine like taking your child to a babysitter, mm-hmm. going to work, thinking everything's okay and coming to find out that your child's in foster care. Or upon yeah. You, yeah. And managing and helping her with that kind of hectic, scared yeah. process. And that's okay. I know that you're probably getting tired of me saying it. <laughs> But you, again, this is another thing that you do really well is that one thing that a lot of people have some fear over is relationships with their biological mm-hmm. families. What, that's, what is that going to be like? Is it going to be adversarial, et cetera? That's a, that's a fear that people have that, um, that you have managed well, again, mm-hmm. just to kind of, um, I don't know, I feel like that phrase, I'm just hammering it. <laughs> that phrase right now maybe help me come up with a new one because i keep on saying that too much yeah another one for that one adam another word for managing yeah managing it well i keep saying that that one i'm I'm beating it down Uh, but you do manage it well outstanding processing look at that Um. (laughs) i'll take outstanding process yeah but um, one of the things that you actually find exciting in this process is to monitor visits, mm-hmm. to build relationships with biological families, where it's not like you take it on with a good attitude. You're actually excited about that process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell me why. So I get people's reservation because it, it is typical that kids get removed because their parents are maybe violent or drugs. So I totally get the reservations and, you know, people think like, you know, I'm taking care of their kids. Are they going to attack me? Or so there's totally, I totally get those reservations, but the first reason why I always like to do it is because the kids are in my home. So if, if I didn't monitor the visits, it would be a social worker picking them up who's basic, the social worker could be a stranger to them. So the social worker driving to us, putting the kid in the social worker's car, taking them to the visits, putting them back in the car. So there's so much back and forth. There's so much strangers. So if they're in my home, I take them straight to the visit and there's like less people in between. And I'm hoping that's less fear for the kids. It's somebody like they trust me, they trust their family, they're visiting. So I just try to like eliminate as much fear and as back and forth with the strangers as I can. And I've, that's my number one reason for doing it. And then on top of that, I get to know the kids better because maybe the mom knows like they like this kind of milk or they like this kind of food. So I learned like the ins and outs of that kid. I learned about the family. So, um, and I've never had anything remotely scary or bad or anything happen at a visit. The families have always been pleasant with me. And so I've never had anything bad. I see the reservations and why people are hesitant, but I've never had anything bad happen. It's one of the things that I 
I tend to tell people is that if somebody's showing up to those visits because they genuinely mm -hmm. want to try to do what they can yeah. in order to get their kinship, their kin back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they're trying and putting in the effort. So yeah, some a lot of a lot of the fear, although again we understand the reservation may mm -hmm. be kind of misplaced. Yeah. Um, it also sounds like focusing on the needs of the child too. Yeah. Then it's mm -hmm. not about you. It's not about your fear. Mm -hmm. It's some, about something more important. And it sounds like things get really anchored and organized that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So then you adopted three more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. So we have Andrew, Sophia, Destiny, and then Sophia left. And then we got um, the sibling from Dana and Gina for a little bit of time. And then he left. And then we got a phone call for Rachel, um, who was five weeks at, at the time. So we got her at five weeks old. You, um, you just went really quickly. Let me just bridge it a little bit. You went really quickly <laughs> through, through um, uh, Benji. So yeah. Dana and Gina mm -hmm. referred to him as Benji. Mm -hmm. um, the sibling for the little guy that they have in their home right mm -hmm. now. They talked about him, that he's an infant. They weren't, initially they said no to him. He came mm -hmm. to your home. Mm -hmm. And then you and Gina and Dana collaborated to yeah. kind of work his way back into their home yeah. because they were willing to give it a shot of like, yeah. let's put these siblings together and, and let's take care of them. So yeah. a great way for community to help um help each other right it's just yeah. like that you're not in it alone as a foster parent that we can work together but initially mm -hmm. the thought i think from your perspective as far as what i i know about your your point of the story is that um you're willing to help the siblings yeah just kind of you know add visits meet mm -hmm. so it was good that he was with you because you guys are friends mm -hmm. yeah. Dana. but then to help that child bridge over to their home it's just like I mean, that really just speaks to community right there. And I don't know if that's, if I'm making that clear or not, but in my mind, it's beautiful. Even if it's not clear to <laughs> whoever else is listening. Yeah. It's clear. I'm getting it. I think it's beautiful too. I mean, that's, that's like the big takeaway that I've been getting from, I mean, having the honor of hearing these stories. It's just whatever, whatever the conflict, whatever the challenges, there's just such a, an enhancement, a strengthening of community. And then how just how powerful that is. I think that is beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Siblings are separated so often in foster care. So to even get the chance of Benji coming, you know, with us and then, you know, being able to do visits with them to keep them connected, but even a step further, even better that he got to go live full time with his siblings. So it was the whole time was about keeping the siblings together, which in the end they got to do. Oh, so tell me about the siblings that you kept together. Oh, so um, with kids coming and going, it was just Andrew by himself for, for nine days, which was so weird to have just one. Mm -hmm. um, then we got a phone call for uh, Rachel, who was five and a half weeks old. And um, she had went from the hospital to a foster family and they um, had a lot on their plate. So she kind of went back into foster care. So she came to our home and oh my gosh like the cutest <laughs> cutest little baby ever um 
So yeah, when they dropped her off and all her belongings, they said, you know, she also has two brothers, ages one and two. We'd like them to be together too. And at first, like, no, the no, day no, that no. They're dropping them off. <laughs> this is the day that they bring her to your home. Yeah, that they brought her here. Like, oh, oh she has. Side note, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, can we leave two more? And like, at first, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's four kids. No, no, no. So, thought about it for a few days. Um, and I called the social worker back. I said, yes, because the goal from the beginning was to keep siblings together. So we thought, you know, this is a perfect way. So a month later, let's see, Leo came at one and a half. Danny was two and a half and had four kids. So initially it was fear that made you say, no, no, no. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, but then purpose kind of stepped yeah. in. Like, this is why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. To keep siblings together. Yeah. And you had four under the age of five. Yeah, that's 2016. So it was Andrew six. Andrew was five or six. Yeah. One thing that you said before is that one is harder than four. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that are willing to debate that with you. But tell Mm -hmm. me why you think that one is harder than four. I I don't know the, the need to like entertain them and you know, give them all, like, give them what they need and just constantly, and just constantly being there. And it just felt like a bigger responsibility. And then two, I don't know, two was hard because it was, like, exhausting. I think because I, like, wasn't organized yet and I, like, wasn't with it yet and still, like, a new parent. And then, like, the third when Destiny came, it was, like, easier. Like, (laughs) I think I was more organized. They could entertain each other. I think a combination of those two things, like, it made it easier. And if you had a fourth, like, (laughs) that's only one more bath. It's only one more plate. Like, it wasn't harder adding a fourth. Well, with that logic, what's what's five then? What's Come on back. (laughs) One day. (laughs) So at this point, you are full-time mom, mm-hmm. full-time student, a lot on your plate. Yeah. And then with COVID, right? So you're doing, are you doing distance learning with the kids right now? Yeah. Um, Danny, Leo, and Andrew are all doing distance learning and me too. <laughs> My desk is right next to Andrew's and... You know, he's listening to his teacher with his headphones on. I have my headphones on and I'm on my Zoom meeting and we all do homework together. So nice, nice, consistent scheduling. Yeah. (laughs) Your hope is to become a a special ed teacher, right? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I think you'll be fantastic at it for sure. If four is easy, just imagine (laughs) add another 12 onto that. Yeah. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) So tell me about. I don't want to kind of leave this interview without getting some of your highs, tell me some of your lows, and then what would you want people to know? What do you think is important for somebody who's listening, who may not um, know too much about foster care or um, thinking that, you know, like, what is this lady talking about? What do you want that person to, to walk away with? Let's see. So uh, there's definitely the high of getting um, the placement. Like we have this baby boy, girl age, like whatever the child is and saying yes. And then getting the house ready. Like we had, you know, like our bottle, you know, closet. Then we had like this box that had boy clothes, girl clothes. So just like getting all that stuff out and, you know, do we need the toddler bed? Do we need the crib? So just that like giddy excitement of 
you know, getting all that stuff out, getting ready, and then they bring the kid over. So there's just that whole excitement, and obviously. Yeah, obviously like we, we said you describe it, and I visualize a little bit of like Christmas happening. It is, yeah, yeah. So there was definitely that um, that excitement, and I always enjoyed monitoring all the visits and getting to know more about the kids and the families. Um, finding out each time that we got to adopt was also amazing, exciting that we were going to be forever families. But on the flip side of that, the low is, you know, we were. Um, I was in the courtroom every single time and the, every single time the judge says parental rights terminated like I'm half so excited that we're a new forever family but then I also see the disappointment loss and heartbreak on the biological family side like they're losing a child that that they gave birth to or they raise or whatever the circumstances may be and that's such a heavy loss, but at the same time, excitement for us. Um, and I always tried on some level when appropriate and safe to keep in contact with the biological family. Um, just not only for my kids so that they have that as an option if they want to keep in contact with them, but for the biological family too. So when safe, when appropriate, I do try to keep that contact and um, I'm happy to do it and the families appreciate it. It seems like that's something that um, Gina and Dana echoed as well is the fact that they didn't initially understand the loss, not only from the biological family, but the loss that the children experience as they come into adoption. That when mm -hmm. adoption not, is not only about a gain, it's also about a loss. Yeah. And navigating that, understanding that, it's like you're better equipped to help the children through the journey of honoring um honoring their past, honoring yeah. where they came from. Yeah. 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 Some, um, some of my kids like to ask questions about their biological family and talk about it. Some of them don't. So um, I have um, photo albums and pictures, you know, for the times that they do. So I can honor that and I can share what I do know. And then I always just kind of sprinkle it, bring it up here and there so that they know it's always something that I'm willing and happy to talk about because I don't I can't pretend that I gave birth to them so I want to honor their them and their past and having that be an open conversation thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. um any other lows that you want to share oh my gosh there's so much maybe like legal unknowns just you know every time there's a court date and there's there's like months in between each court date so there's like that so much waiting for these big decisions to be made and um if I don't go to court then I definitely don't know what happened there's so much you know if you can't get a hold of a social worker for a few days and there's just so much legal unknowns that are just like you're biting your nails, you're pacing, you're upset, you're happy. So there's just so much of those like legal paperwork unknowns that are so hard to deal with. But um, I think I personally learned over time, just trusting the process, just it's about this kid in my home at this moment, they're safe and loved and it'll all fall in its place how it's supposed to be in the end. And it also sounds like you're recommending go to the court when you can, like go there. Yeah, I've I went to almost every almost every single hearing for every kid. 
especially if it was like adoption cases. So um, that way you like, you knew what was going on and you can meet new people like the lawyers and um, cause foster parents aren't given any face time with lawyers and judges and their opinions aren't really heard about anything. But if I could catch the lawyer running into the courtroom and, you know, give my piece, then um, hopefully it made a difference. And sometimes it did. And as far as the unknown, like this foster care really is a world of, mm-hmm. uh, of unknown. Yeah. For the foster parent, for the children, most definitely. Um, so really what I, one of the things that I ask people or foster parents, and you know this because you came through the training is like, even if you can't control anything else around you, what you can control is your outlook, the way you manage the experience and the way you're present for the experience. And I think that you've done that, you know, obviously really well. Uh, so tell me what you would share with um, Joe, who's listening, me, Veronica, whoever you are out there that's listening right now, what would you say to them about this process? What's the takeaway? It can be scary from the beginning, just going to the training and hearing about maybe trauma or the unknowns, or there's a lot of paperwork or just there's those unknowns. And then when the kids actually come and just getting to know them, that's scary. And it's like, this baby's been crying for an hour and I don't know how to make it stop. But the bonding that happens in, in that hour and the trials and errors and the bonding you get with the kids and like that's that makes it all worth it in the end like those little smiles the little all those things and the cute outfits and the happy moments and the baths and the splashing and the messes is is all the stuff in the end that makes it worth it it makes like your heart melt and all that stuff go away coming from you i believe it (laughs) (laughs) you said it with such heart you know, there's so much heart behind it. Thank you so much, Raquel, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with me. This has been so fantastic to learn about this area that I didn't know anything about. <laughs> so he was that Joe or the Tiffany out there listening and got to- I, was, I was listening. I was listening. I'm into it. I'm into it. Yeah, absolutely. That'll do it for us here at the Five Acres Podcast where we provide inspiration, motivation, and concrete action steps for families struggling with issues related to adoption, residential care, and mental health. Thank you to all of you out there for joining us. And remember, you can find all the links and numbers we've spoken about today at our site's page and at fiveacres.org.